Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Japan occupies an ambitious position in geopolitics, desiring to maintain a balance of power in the face of a rising China and to bring about economic prosperity, peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific region. Here to discuss how Japan hopes to achieve this and its place in regional security is Senior Associate Professor Stephen Nagy from the Department of Politics and International Studies at the International Christian University in Tokyo, Japan. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. So what is Japan's vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific and how is it reflected in its engagement with its regional partners? Well, I think when we look at Japan's free and open Indo-Pacific vision, uh, there's three primary pillars. One is uh, establishing a rules-based order. Uh, Two is institution building, and that institution building is through trade, through infrastructure connectivity, and through development. And three is fostering security, and that security aspect of of the region is dealing with some of the geopolitical challenges that you mentioned in your uh, opening. Mm. North Korea, with its proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, of course, challenges in the East China Sea by China, potential instability across the Taiwan Straits, um, the South China Sea, and the region broadly is under transformative change, and Japan wants to make sure that it's in line with Japan's interests. Mm-hmm. And free and open Indo-Pacific, that is a concept Japan can kind of claim origin of? Absolutely. Prime Minister Abe initially put this idea forward back in 2005 when he visited the Indian parliament, giving a speech about the confluence of the two seas, of the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. And from that period onward, the Japanese government really started to think about how they could inculcate more stability in the region, Mm. how they could uh, embed Japan into the region's political economy, but also ensure that as it develops, as institutions develop, that the rules-based, transparent, and in many ways uh, suit the interests of Japan, and it's the post-World War II order that has brought Japan prosperity, but also bring China into a more rules-based, I think, institutionally limited sense of how it engages within the region. And I think that's really, really critical, uh, Mm. especially as we watch countries like Russia invade Ukraine, but also look at how China's trying to revise the regional order. Um, That revision would come at the expense of other countries, including Japan. Yeah. And uh, this is why Japan focuses on this idea of free and open. Okay, so it's it's very important then that Japan gets buy-in, not just from its, its allies and partners in the region and beyond, but also that you know, there's acknowledgement of the concept and the core beliefs of it from those that they would consider their rivals. Well, what we see with this idea of free and open Indo-Pacific or Indo-Pacific um, vision, strategy, guidelines is that um, most countries that have a similar approach are thinking about the importance of ensuring this region continues to develop with a certain prescribed set of rules that ensure that trade, ensure that infrastructure and connectivity And I think as well as conflict or disagreement is arbitrated by rules. And that's really important. I think countries like Japan or Australia or Canada, where I'm from, are really concerned about large countries, in particular China, using their power Mm -hmm. in a Machiavellian sense of might of right approach to dealing with international disputes. And of course, a very, very large country has enormous resources that they can bring to bear on smaller countries like Japan and Australia. And from this standpoint, again, uh, Japan is trying to curry the favor of many like-minded countries to support more rules-based institutional approach to how we uh, engage in the Indo-Pacific region. 
So Japan's military in the form of a defence force is one of the most powerful in the world, and we've seen incremental shifts to enhance its capabilities, uh, for example, abandoning the ban on arms exports. How much of a line are they trying to push between offence and defence? And and here as well, I, I think it's quite relevant that former prime ministers have been subtly talking up things like nuclear capabilities, which is yet another bench that I never thought Japan would entertain sitting on. Your point is really interesting, but I think if we look at Japan's military expenditures or its self-defense expenditures since 1990, mm. they have really fluctuated between about 46 billion US dollars and about 49 to 50 US billion dollars. We haven't really seen a, a dramatic shift. And the comparison is looking at, for example, China, mm. uh, 10% year-on-year increase in military budgets, real rapid expansion in its naval fleet. By some estimates, the Chinese are replacing or creating a, a French naval fleet every year. Uh, Japan hasn't been there. So I think this is a one way to look at Japan's incremental change in its self-defense posture within the region. Second is looking at it through Article 9. The kinds of actions that the self-defense forces engage in um, really have to be interpreted through Article 9. So whether it's dealing with a Chinese fisherman in the Senkaku Islands or pushing back against gray zone operations, the self-defense forces are really trained to first think about does our behavior and our choices fall in line with Article 9? And in that sense, they're really hemmed in what they can do with their current self-defense forces. So just a a bit of backstory, Article 9 is... Article 9 is part of the post World II Constitution in which Japan really gave up the right to use military force as an instrument of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And that's why we call it a self-defense force rather than a military. Although, as you mentioned, by most accounts, it's the third most powerful self-defense force or military force on the planet. Yeah, yeah. But I want to step back to the point that you mentioned, some politicians bringing up the idea of uh, at least acquiring a nuclear deterrent. And this was something that came up just recently where former Prime Minister Abe talked about this. And the reaction by the public was no. And the reaction by the current Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kishida Fumio, who hails from Hiroshima, the first city that was bombed by the first atomic bomb, said absolutely no, we're not considering shifting our position. So I think that when we look at the leadership level and we look at Article 9 and we look at the procurement of of Japanese self-defense capacities, um, really their position within the region hasn't substantially changed over the past 20 years. And uh, I don't see the public having the appetite for a fundamental shift in their security policy and changing Article 9 in the next 10 years. Mm. So it seems like there's that line that you think is just a no-go area. That's right. Their post-World War II identity is really linked to being the first victims of atomic weaponry, yeah, and that they have a strong inclination towards pacifism. And I think this is broadly shared in the public, but also by most politicians. Mm-hmm. So not going over that line uh, really limits what you can do as far as nuclear deterrence goes when you've got uh, North Korea doing weapon tests, you've got other countries in the region, you've got uh, Russia being militaristic, not towards Japan, but definitely within striking distance, I guess, if they wanted to be inclined that way. So Matt, this really brings up a a nuanced argument. When we're thinking about North Korea, you know, the question is, does a nuclear deterrent deter the North Koreans from their actions? And I think at this particular stage, the Japanese understand that um, anti-missile, ballistic missile defense is the direction they would like to go. Mm. I think they're rethinking how they can uh, push back against North Korea in terms of preemptive strike capability, but that's a challenge. But what's happened with 
Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the inability of NATO really to do much to push back against Russia. Um, from the Japanese point of view is that the key difference between pushing back against Russia and maybe pushing back against a non-nuclear state, of course, is nuclear weapons. And I think this is where the initial discussions about some kind of nuclear deterrent may be uh, useful in thinking about not so much Russia, but potentially China over um, Taiwan or over uh, the Senkaku Islands. Mm -hmm. So where does the kind of middle line come between antagonizing a rival and showing a strong front? Because if you take the example of things like a, the freedom of navigation efforts that they engage with, with their allies, that could be taken as antagonizing China, especially depending on the course that you plot. Well, here I'd like to be really clear. I think Japan doesn't have a zero-sum approach towards China. Mm. Uh, last year, it did $210 billion in trade, $210 billion of trade. And this is despite um, record unfavorable ratings of China in Japan. So that economic relationship is critically important to Japan's sustainable economic future, and it doesn't want to cross that line. So how Japan is trying to deal with the security issues within the region, of course, is bolstering the U.S.-Japan alliance. That is really critical. Building new partnerships, such as the Reciprocal Access Agreement with Australia that was signed at the end of December 2021. And here uh, it allows for Australia and Japan to train in each other's countries and build a more interoperability of their forces. And the third layer is what we call strategic partnerships, is that Japan's investing in building the capabilities of other countries so that they can provide maritime domain awareness activities and capabilities to the region, help build their Coast Guard vessels. And lastly, I think Japan's approach is really building a, a multi-layered, multilateral set of cooperative relationships within the region. Mm. And here we see things like the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership with Australia, of course. Uh, we have the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which also includes Australia. Um, but we also have partnerships with Europe, the Japan-EU-EPA uh, uh, Economic Partnership Agreement, as well as another agreement that focuses on infrastructure. So Japan is looking at its security through this multi-layer process that really prioritizes multilateral cooperation as the key, I guess, aspect of its deterrence capabilities towards China. Mm. I, I know that in Australia there are efforts to decouple to some extent, uh, economic reliance on the relationship with China. Is there the same kind of engines at work in Japan with how they're approaching their economy? I know, know you just said that there's diversifying and other options uh, with allies and partners in the region. But the fact of the matter is that there is a lot of economic reliance on China. So the Japanese don't use the word decoupling, and I think most countries don't really think about the word decoupling, but it's definitely selective diversification of specific supply chains. You know, this was, of course, magnified and accelerated by the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. You know, it started in Wuhan, and Wuhan is the home to uh, many huge industries, uh, automobile industries, pharmaceutical industries, and others. And the Chinese approach, of course, was to shut down the province where it, it initially started, and this affected supply chains. And the take-home lesson, I think, from Japan and other countries is that we need to selectively diversify our supply chains within China and outside China so that we have many hubs that can pick up the slack in case there's another black swan event like COVID-19, mm. or there's the geopolitical problems that, of course, Australia has faced after calls for a, an international investigation of the origins of COVID-19, or after Japan nationalized the Senkaku Islands back in 2012, and, and that was followed by a lot of vandalism and, and damage to Japanese businesses in, in mainland China. So 
we're not talking about decoupling. We're talking about a selective diversification of specific industries to make countries more resilient. Let's talk about Taiwan. Taiwan is great for Japan in some ways, I see it as, because that is a target that is not Japan. How does it, I imagine, lend support to Taiwan without lending support to Taiwan? So this is really interesting. And what we've seen over the past year is messaging at the unilateral level, bilateral level, and multilateral level for supporting what I call a status quo across the Taiwan Straits. And the status quo across the Taiwan Straits is basically Taiwan does not declare independence unilaterally, and China doesn't engage in a forced reunification of Taiwan. We saw Prime Minister Abe, uh, former Prime Minister Abe, back in December, talk about uh, a Taiwan contingency is a Japan contingency. And basically what he was saying that forced reunification with Taiwan would be messy. Mm. It would disrupt sea lines of communication. That's those critical arteries that transport imports and exports and energy resources into the second, third, and 10th largest economies in the world. And to give you a, a sense of the value, about 5 trillion US dollars in goods goes through the South China Sea, East China Sea, and Taiwan Straits. That's yeah. an incredible amount. So Japan has been signaling to both Beijing and Taipei that they want the status quo. And this is why we see leaders say that we support peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits, uh, that a Taiwan contingency is a Japan contingency. And I think from that standpoint, Japan is being very much supporting Taiwan's position without supporting Taiwan's position, as you mentioned it in the question. Mm. Yeah, because I imagine there's only so much that they can do within the realm of defense. But at the same time, they've got to protect their interests. I see there is quite a bit of a, a blurred line there. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Japan's interest with regards to Taiwan, of course, is that it represents a critical democratic Chinese society in the midst of the Indo-Pacific. And this is a counter narrative in many ways to what the Communist Party of China does often talk about, that democracy is an alien concept to Chinese civilization mm. and that it shouldn't be something that is being pushed or, or forced or it shouldn't be sold as a universal concept of governance. So in this sense, I think it bodes well for Japan to continue to support Taiwan without crossing that one China red line. Yeah. And that's a critical agreement that there's one China and that one China is Beijing. So security partnerships uh, with countries such as Australia, India, Southeast Asian nations, South Korea, and of course, the, the big one, the United States, are uh, integral to the importance of the security of Japan. So how are these relationships balanced? And is Japan getting out of them what they want? I see in some ways that they're trying to make up for the limitations that Article 9 imposes by relying on strong ties with these allies. So I think that they're not all equivalent. Um, the U.S.-Japan alliance is, is the creme de la creme, right? It's, it's the cornerstone for Japan's security within the region, but yeah. not just Japan's security. Uh, also South Korea's, the Philippines, Singapore's, and others. So that is really the top level. And then we go into uh, agreements like the Reciprocal Access Agreement between Australia and Japan. And that represents another, I think, really fortified self-defense agreement. It's not an offensive agreement, right? It's that if something happens to Japan, Australia now will, I think, be required to come in and help Japan deal with whatever the security issue is. Mm. The strategic partnerships, as I mentioned, is more about building the capacities of other states so that they can deal with their security challenges unilaterally. So uh, Japan's providing Coast Guard vessels to countries like the Philippines and Vietnam and Malaysia. 
They're trying to enhance their human capacity through interoperability training. Um, they give them technologies, but they're not an alliance in the sense that, um, you know, if uh, the Philippines attacks the, the Vietnamese, that Japan will come in and help one of those countries. It's, mm. it's not like that. The next layer is the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which you've probably heard about. This is really transformed, I think, from a primarily maritime security arrangement to one about providing public goods to the region. So they've really shifted their focus away from security cooperation to talking about technology supply chains, the provision of vaccines to emerging countries, to infrastructure and connectivity, and some aspect of security cooperation. So that's another aspect of how Japan is viewing security through the region, through these minilateral relationships like the Quad. So they have a lot of different formulas. This should be understood as kind of a multi-layered approach to dealing with the security challenges within the region, mm. while at the same time continue to strengthen their economic ties with Beijing in very selective ways. Mm. What about in the case of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, where there's a lot of countries that would like to provide aid and are providing aid and supplies and assistance to Russia. What is Japan's limitations in that kind of situation? So I think most of us have been surprised how forward-leaning the Japanese have been in terms of um, economic sanctions and working with the United States and the EU in terms of pushing back against the Russian invasion of Ukraine by supporting very, very stiff sanctions on the Russian market, on Russian banks. And this has come at a cost. I think that for the Japanese, reintegrating the Northern Territories or getting back the Northern Territories from Russia by doing this is completely unlikely now. But I think they view what's happened in Ukraine through the lens of what potentially could happen in Japan's backyard uh, over Taiwan or over the Senkaku Islands. And what is the best way for Japan to uh, push back? And to push back is to use its economic leverage mm. to build good partnerships, to build resilience in its economic and supply chains, so that if there is a similar action in this region, Japan will be a much more resilient uh, country and that it will most likely get similar cooperative behavior from the EU and the United States and Australia and Canada and others to help Japan deal with its security challenges in the region. So with the recent leadership change that Japan has had with the new prime minister in place, have you seen or anticipate an evolution or maybe even a, a pullback from Japan's security approach, particularly in more recent times. So Prime Minister Kishida Fumio was elected the president of the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, back in the end of September, and he became the prime minister soon after. So he's been the premier for about six months, and he's facing a summer election, upper house election. Mm. And I think what he has done is a very low-keyed put foreign policy on autopilot over the past six months because his priority was dealing with the COVID-19 uh, crisis at home. Um, putting in the, the pieces of the puzzle so he could consolidate his uh, premiership in the election. So I think that we haven't really seen a big shift, mm. but following the election, I assume that he'll get reelected and that he will have a good showing, which means at that point he'll be able to have a more autonomous or independent foreign policy from his predecessors. That being said, I think there's broad agreement within the LDP that the initial free and open Indo-Pacific vision that we started with today is the right direction. Uh, the question is, where do we strengthen it? Where do we tweak the current um, strategy so that it's more effective? It gathers more stakeholders that support the policy. 
and um, really make it a more sustainable policy. Uh, so post-election, I assume that Mr. Kishida will be much more proactive on the international scene mm. compared to today. Yeah, and I gather that a lot of the activity today would be due to the Ukraine invasion. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that he's been steady. He's continued the policies of before, but I don't think he's carved out a unique policy yet. The Ukraine invasion has really provided an opportunity for Japan to test a lot of its economic security uh, policies that it's uh, starting to invest heavily in, in the region towards Russia, with the idea that these will probably be tools that they'll use in their backyard if there's some kind of friction between China and the United States or China and Japan in the months and years to come. All right, Stephen Nagy, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts and all readily available podcasting platforms. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter. Stephen is at NegiSteven1. Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.